breaking a leg. Breaking a Leg, episode 17. And this is definitely going to be the last episode before the show itself because I'm speaking to you on the morning of uh, December the 6th, 2015. It's a Sunday morning. Uh, I woke up not that long ago. Um, and tonight's the night of the show. So this podcast, as you'll know, is about the making of a stand-up show which, in a sort of quixotic fashion... I've written an entire stand-up show which is going to be over an hour long and I'm, I'm performing it and it's going to be for one night only and I just thought that it would be a really interesting thing to sort of chronicle what goes on when you're making something like that. Obviously the outcome of the show we don't know until I put it before an audience tonight uh, and this is the 17th episode uh, you know, if, if I was obsessed by numbers and set store by the fact that oh, we haven't got an even number or a round number or a number that sounds satisfying, oh, won't that bode badly for the show? Uh, no, but I was thinking about the significance of the number seventeen. I think I was seventeen years old when I probably did what could be counted as my first stand-up show. I was in the sixth form and. Uh, I, in fact, I would have definitely been 17, I'm sure of it, because I was in the sixth form and uh, we hosted a party for old age pensioners and I was asked to be the compare for the entertainment and they just said, oh, you know, just, just tell them some jokes. So I wasn't anything I'd written. It would have been old gags that I probably got from Ragmag because I had an older brother and an older sister, so I'd been introduced to the university Ragmag. And uh, when I first found them, I thought it was amazing, like a, a load of rude jokes written down so you can go back and look at them again, that kind of thing. Oh, you know, uh, uh, this is before the internet, you know, the idea of a store of jokes was quite an interesting thing. So, like, you know, I picked out a load of jokes, obviously none too rude. And, uh, and it generally went well, although I do remember losing them. <laughs> so I ill-advisedly told them a joke about... Um, uh, about whales uh, and thinking about it it's pretty offensive in lots of different ways um, but uh, I liked the politics of it so the joke the joke was uh, guy in Wales um, goes into a pub and he says I've just seen a, a, a sheep uh, uh, and uh, to be honest I've just seen Margaret Thatcher on the telly and she's uglier than that sheep and uh, the the pub was filled with appalled silence. And he said, what's the matter? Is this, I didn't know this was Margaret Thatcher country. So he turned to him and said, it isn't, it's sheep country. Now, I was probably too young to know the, the stereotypes of Welsh people. I just thought it was funny that people would hold sheep into higher esteem than Margaret Thatcher. But obviously pensioners, circa 1981 or whatever, w would uh, probably not have shared that opinion so uh yeah i i not, not my finest hour but yeah on the other hand you know it's probably my first ever stand-up gig probably sort of kind of and uh, i was 17 at the time so that that brings a relevance to this show okay so this episode 
It's called Last Leg because it's the last leg of the process of putting the show together before the show. Also, the show is about the process of breaking my legs, so there's a nice little bit of thematic play going on with that. And this episode comprises of various bits of audio that document the last few stages of putting the show together. And I'm not going to introduce each one and explain what it is because I think they're self-explanatory. So, uh, here goes. Breaking a leg. On the 30th of January this year, I went out for an early morning jog. I wasn't a hardcore jogger. I used to go out for about five minutes before work some mornings. And in fact, the little circuit that I used to do was less than a kilometre. Breaking a leg. That was quite interesting. Um, I just ran the show and I did everything, everything in the show, including using all the props and doing the quick change that I need to do between the end of the show and the encore. Um, and it was... Uh, well, I decided to record it because I thought it'd be quite interesting to have not just sort of an indication in writing uh, of, of the content of the show, but a record in speech and performance of what the show is like when only half of it's there, in other words, my bit. Hopefully, the audience's response is yet to add to that, meaning that hopefully they'll laugh and and uh, perhaps have other reactions as well. The, the thing about it, though, is that um, it didn't go that well. It's interesting. What I've been doing is running the show in my head silently on the way to work. Now, the trip to work takes about between 20 and 40 minutes. Normally, it's about half an hour. And the show is about an hour and a half. So clearly I'm not doing the whole show in my head, but I'm thinking through this bit, this bit, this bit, this bit, and it takes me the whole journey. And uh, it's very familiar to me, the structure of the show now, but I haven't run it since Tuesday. It's now the Thursday before the Sunday of the show. And I haven't run it since Tuesday when it went pretty much exactly to plan. I don't think I, I perhaps missed one thing out. But today it wasn't great. And I think one of the things that was a pressure was knowing it was being recorded, actually. I think I was hyper aware of the recording device capturing every mistake and wrong inflection, you know, that, that, you know for posterity. In a, in a way, I think that doing it in performance is going to be easier because, I, I, you know, the audience will be enough of a distraction from the fact that it's being recorded. Well, actually, I say that. It's going to be filmed, hopefully, by the student television company. And, well, we'll see how that goes uh, in terms of whether that's off-putting or not. But, um, yeah, it, 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 I mean, it wasn't awful. I managed to get through the whole thing. Uh, but there was one moment where I'd realised I'd just missed out a whole chunk, which was quite important as well. And there was another moment where I realised I'd missed out a small bit, which actually, you know, if, if I missed that out on the day, it's probably not that important. It's just a little bit that I think might be quite funny and sets up a thread in in the show. So it's quite, I mean, it'll be very interesting to listen to, listen back to the, to the, the sort of rehearsal recording compared with the recording of the final show. I'm really hoping the show goes well at this point, of course. But even if it doesn't, listening to it next to the rehearsal recording will be really interesting. There will definitely be differences because it's a bit like the difference between leaving a message on a on a voicemail 
and actually talking to somebody when you know there's nobody there listening it can be hard to get the same kind of articulacy whereas when you're talking to somebody the meaning is easier to kind of get because you're reading them all the time are they taking this in and that's quite interesting as well because quite a few of the jokes are things that I've said to people on many occasions since the accident that inspired the show and um, they, they always get a laugh right uh, but there's a paranoid part of me that thinks well maybe they won't work when you're talking to an entire audience also of course I've been rehearsing them rehearsing them without an audience maybe I've what I've been doing is fixing them in the wrong form but I'm hoping that won't be the case um, and it is just very interesting how the, the psychological effects of recording, particularly because, of course, I'm recording now in an empty room, just to myself, just to the to the um, recording device, and how that affects things. Breaking a leg. And uh, we've also got Oliver Double, who is a lecturer and comedian at the University of Kent. Is that at the same time? Uh, definitely. Listen, I've just been laughing. Your question, are you any good at tennis? That's genius journalism. It's the funniest question. And then, can you beat me at tennis? Brilliant. Brilliant Pra-praise work. Praise indeed from a comedian. Uh, yeah. Um, you, you do your job, I'll do mine. All right. <laughs> what about you, then? Are you any good at, at comedy, then? <laughs> yeah, you're, you're really going with those questions. <laughs> Hopefully I am, yeah. yeah I've, I've actually been really busy this week because I'm, I'm building up to doing a show at the Gulbenkian on, on Sunday in Canterbury, uh, on Sunday night. And, uh, well, perhaps we'll talk about that later, but I've been working so hard at it, trying to find time between doing a full-time job to actually construct a new full-length stand-up show as well. So, yeah. A leg. Although you sound in agreement with that. Yeah, I mean, I, I my show, strangely enough, is actually about the health service in some ways, in that it was about when I broke my femur in January, and I spent... That must day- be a laugh a minute. Oh, well, hopefully it will be. <laughs> hopefully it will be a laugh for an hour and a bit on, on Sunday night. It's called Break a Leg, by the way. I think that's just a good title of the show. <laughs> I, I see but, what you did there. You, you say that I'm obvious and superficial. Yeah. Well, the point, the point is that uh, I, I spent eight days in the QEQM hospital in Margate, and although, uh, you know, I think that large I had, I had you know, lots of positive experiences. The nurses were brilliant and all that kind of thing. You know, the, the, the discourse around the NHS is always, oh, it's protected, it's ring-fenced, oh, it's not been affected by the recession and things like that. But I have to say there were signs of it creaking. Two, two specific symptoms. One, I was lying in a puddle of icy water waiting for the ambulance to arrive for an hour and ten minutes... Hour and ten minutes. I I was hypothermic. They were actually worried that, you know, I I was getting dangerously hypothermic by the time it arrived. And um, and even then, it kept having um, things from the radio going, oh, leave him, leave him, we've got to send you somewhere else. (laughs) Right? That's Mm. true. Yeah, absolutely. And then the other thing was, when I was dropped off at home after eight days, I was dropped off, it's not called... Um, whatever it used to be called. It's not called an ambulance, it's called sort of patient transit or something. And I talked to the ladies and they said it had been privatised within the last two years or whatever. And I said, what difference does that make? And they said, well, before we used to be able to just drop off the people at our own pace. Now they tell us that person is allowed 15 minutes, that person 10 minutes. And she said, if you've got elderly and infirm people, um, it's really difficult to get it done within the strictures. And actually, it caused me personally pain because they gave me 
a wheelchair that looked so old it could have been used in the First World War, right? And I'm quite tall, and I couldn't fit my dodgy leg onto the footplate except by excruciatingly folding my leg into a position it didn't want to go into. So, you know, I, I, what I, all I'm trying to say is I think the health service, the discourse around it isn't reflecting how creaky it is on the ground. And, it, I, and I don't, I just don't think junior dots would, would be threatening such, something so severe as a strike if they weren't really angry about about this and worried. Is that a piece of your set by any chance, Oliver? It's not, actually. I've got so much <laughs> material in bit. <laughs> Give some to me, please. I'd do a bit of stand-up, but I don't admit it very publicly. Uh, no, I know you did. That's quite interesting, actually. Breaking a leg. I know that you've got to go. There's a very good link there because you're going to have to go and lecture some people. I now. do, I do. It must be amazing to be lectured by a celebrity like you, Oliver. <laughs> well, come and do a guest lecture. I'm sure they'd be thrilled. I, will, I take you up on that offer. <laughs> I take you up on that offer. But no visitation by your good self would be complete without giving you yet another chance to plug your forthcoming show. It's uh, Break a Leg. It's on at the Gulbenkian Theatre, Canterbury, on Sunday the 6th of December. This is this Sunday at 7.30. Get well soon. Enjoy your... Thank you. Enjoy your tea. Breaking a leg. It's the day before my show, and um, I've talked a bit about the emotional aspects of putting a stand-up show together, and I'm going to talk a bit more about that now. I've I've spent most of the day doing nothing whatsoever to do with the show. Uh, I, it, it's um, Saturday, the fifth of December, 2015, and uh, my older son Joe who's just turned 19, has just finished his first term at university. So we had to drive a kind of 260-mile round trip today to go and pick him up. And uh, I think that's quite good. I think it's quite good to have done a major other thing other than fretting about my show today. Though on the way there, uh, Jackie sat in the seat next to me. She was listening to music on her headphones, and I spent about an hour mentally going through the show the whole show's going to be longer than an hour, but you know some of the bits you just flick forward on because you know them and, and you concentrate on the segues, that kind of thing. It's quite a really interesting way of rehearsing is, is, is instead of speaking the thing, it's actually just thinking through what happens. One of the weird things about doing a stand-up show is the first time you think of an idea for a joke, you get really excited. There's this rush, almost in your chest, in your heart, as you go, oh, that's really funny. And it's like you sometimes even laugh out loud if you really conceited I suppose actually I very rarely do that I have done it before but um, but you get this rush of excitement oh I think that'll be funny and you write it down writing it down just the very act of writing it down can slightly kill the magic it's like oh maybe it's not so good by the time you actually get to try and give it form so that it, it's something you could say on stage assuming you're not the kind of comedian who just goes out there with a test audience and just does it riffs on it and tries to make it work which I'm not I just don't have enough exposure with an audience to be able to do that. Then um, then you have to sort of speak it out loud or go through it in your head. At that point, you become convinced of its unfunniness. And in fact, what I've been trying to do is concentrate on the overall arc of the show rather than the individual gag. Because if I thought about each gag and over overanalyze whether people are going to laugh or not, well, that's that's madness, that is. So you just look at the, the the pattern of the show, how it's structured, how one thing leads to the next, and just trust to the comedy gods <laughs> at least some of it is actually going to be funny and get a tangible response from the audience. But what's really interesting, I've spoken before about um, being match fit to perform a stand-up show, and since the beginning of October, 
I've been uh, comparing the weekly student comedy night at Mungo's Bar at the University of Kent, which is something I've been doing for the last 15 years. And in the last few years, or maybe the last three or four years, I've been consciously, rather than just seeing that as a chore, you know, I know how to do this now, I'll just do this, I'll get the audience to shout out a bit, and then I'll bring the acts on. I've actually been using it to try and improve my skills as a comic and actually enjoy it and actually make it better, make the show better because of my contribution to it. And this run has been no exception. I've been, even even with small audiences that are quite unresponsive, I've been deliberately, even though it's something I find quite hard to do, putting in a section of the show where I work the audience a bit by talking to punters and sort of improvising with them. And uh, actually on, on Thursday I did that and it, it's quite, it worked quite well. Um, because what I find with a small and timid audience is it's, it's like getting blood from a stone trying to get them to talk back to you. So what I did was I switched, switched, switched it around and I, I said, OK, well, you can ask me questions and I'm, I've got to answer them honestly and I'm going to be up here for five minutes. I've got somebody to time me. And I said that I've got three passes of questions I'm allowed to just refuse to answer, which obviously then gets them asking me things like, what, what are your bank details? Right, that's one of my passes out of the way. And that worked really well. But what's interesting is before that gig on Thursday, I remember thinking to I distinctly remember thinking to myself, Oh, what if, because I'm nervous because I've got a show coming up, I completely screw this gig up and then I have a horrible time and nobody laughs at anything I say. Oh, that really put me into a bad state of mind before the actual gig. And there's this weird thing, like a will to fail. Like there's part of you that sort of self-sabotages. It's like if you're playing a song and you suddenly think, oh, what if you forgot the next line? And then you can't remember the next line, even if it's a song that you know, like the back of your hand. Um, or, you know, oh, if I said this word wrong in this sentence now that I'm saying right as I'm thinking this, the whole joke would die. And sometimes that actually happens. You know, you stumble over the word and the, the punchline is based on sort of verbal fluency and, you, and it just goes. You've, you've missed it. But I watched Mark Thomas last night uh, doing his Trespass show. It's the second time I've seen it. I saw it back in the summer. And it was absolutely fantastic. It was the Whitstable Horsebridge, and it, it's great seeing him in a small, packed venue. And there's a really interesting sort of sense of community that was created by the show. But, you know, I noticed things like, you know, I'm fretting over when, I, when if I screw up the, the PowerPoint because I've got a clicker to do it. Um, and actually, that's quite difficult to do when you're trying to get the show together. You, you want it to be really smooth and make it look like you're not even concentrating on things. But when you've got to do something physical on stage in a stand-up act, whether it's anything like playing a song or handling a prop or even finding the right page in a notebook, it's about four times as difficult as if you were just doing it by yourself in a room because you've got so much else going on that it's, it's a bit like if you're listening to music and then you have to parallel park, you have to turn the music off while you're doing it because even though it's only listening to music, it's just taking away that tiny little extra bit of attention that you need to be able to park the car safely. And it's sort of like that, really, that, that because you've got all this other stuff going on, then things that are normally simple, like flicking through a notebook till you find the right page, can become really difficult. And uh, Mark last night was was somebody else was operating his PowerPoint, and this guy made a mistake. Now I've had that happen before, and it's awful when somebody flashes up a, uh, an image before the time is right for the gag. That's why I'm doing my own PowerPoint. But anyway, the point I'm coming to is that occasionally Mark briefly stumbled over a word, or something went wrong with the PowerPoint, or right at the beginning of the show, um, his microphone. He just realised it was useless. It'd been set up wrong. It was making a funny clicking noise. 
and also there was a there was a mad heckler who just thought he was funny and nobody else did and he just kept going through the first half of the show and Mark is such an amazing performer and the fact that he just dealt with all of that and I could see that you could have a show that had chaotic elements in it and it could still be really enjoyable and nobody would have walked away with that from that show going oh that moment when he had to verbally cue the fact he kept having to verbally cue the powerpoint slides sort of slightly took took away the fluency nobody would have thought that he's so verbally articulate that if you the 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 one saw twice that he kind of you know a word didn't come out quite right nobody would notice because the overall fluency of the performance is extraordinary and it's it's very inspiring to see that because you know you kind of think well okay well okay so let's say I, i screw up a slide or something like that tomorrow night or you know one line goes awry or i don't explain the setup to that thing completely perfectly it's okay it's 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 fine as long as the whole thing has integrity um so the so the only thing to really worry about um is uh that you know it, are people going to find it funny that's what i've said in this podcast all along there could be a twist ending. It could just be a lousy show. In which case, what's the point of documenting it? Well, I suppose if it does go horribly wrong, it's to work out what went wrong. And maybe there was a problem with the process. But the, but the awful thing, of course, it, it may not be that. It may just be I'm bad on the night. But, you know, there's, I, I was listening to um, some interview for, audio interview footage of Woody Allen uh, talking about his stand-up years back in the 60s um, in the car today. And um, he was talking about when he started as a stand-up, uh, he, he was working as a very successful comedy writer on television, but he wanted to become a performer. And it wasn't an easy transition, not least because of his stage fright and neurosis. And he had supportive managers who'd go and watch him and give him feedback and help him to develop and things like that. And he was talking about how even when people loved it, he kept doubting that it was good and actually um i've obviously i'm a lecturer so i go on every week and and speak publicly to to lecture you know and even in a workshop you know it's still the same you you hold it together and you're talking to a bunch of people and uh i've done nine monkey shines now so nine student comedy nights in the last however many weeks nine nine weeks or whatever um I've done extra things where I've had to get up and, and speak. Jackie and I did a, a, an event for Diabetes UK where we just sort of interviewed each other in front of a live audience. And on Friday, uh, yesterday, I went on to Radio Kent on a show uh, with Lembit Opic, uh, remember him, um, talking about the week's news. Uh, it was a good chance to plug the show. And I was talking about uh, the show without deliberately not giving any material in that because I don't want to give it away, really. But there was a bit where I was talking about it. He goes, oh, is that in the show? And I went, no, 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 I've, I, haven't, that, I haven't got room for that in the show. Because it was trying to imply, I suppose, in a nice way that it was quite funny. But the point is, all of these things, my articulacy hasn't failed me, you know. And yet there's still a sneaky little bit of me that goes, oh, what if just tomorrow is the time when it all leaves you and everything goes wrong, like the props go wrong, you can't string a sentence together, you get struck by this uncontrollable fear you don't have a sense of ease on stage which takes away all the hopefully charm that you have when you're feeling easy on stage all of those things could happen 
Uh, and there's part of your brain that's going, oh, what if that does happen? Why? What? <laughs> Where's the evolutionary advantage in that? In, in self-doubt, you know? Uh, and why, also, why do dicks seem to lack that response? You know, some people are just like, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm absolutely brilliant. I, I Yeah, I rule the world, of course. You know, I mean, this current government possibly fit into that thing. You know, how could you have the confidence to go, right, I'm going to send jets over to missile this other country with no clear plan or hypothesis as to how this is going to address the situation? But I have the confidence to... to, to send orders which will it for absolute certain kill people but i have the self-confidence to do that and yet here's me doubting that you know i have a right to be on stage i mean i have to say this, these are not my predominant feelings you know objectively i think it's going to be okay i mean it will be a home crowd you know it, it, it's uh, it, it's in the, not the town where i live but the town where i work and obviously if you work at a university you know a lot of people you know, you've got colleagues and you've got students who will come see the show um, and they all know me, you know, and, and a lot of them will know me because they've seen me perform before. And to that extent, it's completely a home crowd. I couldn't. Yeah, I think this I just that's the other thing I've been doing, obsessively checking um, the, um, the, the the ticket sales. Now, how I do that is by going on to the Gulbenkian Theatre's website and uh pretending I'm going to book a ticket and when it comes up with the choose your seat option you can see which seats are taken you have to be careful because some of them are blocked out because they only sell those if all the rest of the seats sell but I reckon I've got coming up to 150 seats gone which is brilliant I mean it, just to contextualize that the, the theatre's capacity is something like 330 so it's not even halfway yet but I know that venue and I know you can play it with 60 people in and so having more than twice that number uh, i mean i've played it before when when it's been full i think and i've also played it when it's been i don't know um yeah about the number that we've with, with about that number anyway it can go really really well and um i can't remember why i was going to say this now um well, it's another, it's another side of the, the, the emotional stress of it. You're looking for validation, so you're kind of obsessively counting the seats. Um, and there's no way that I could get that kind of crowd anywhere else. I mean, if I got 10% of that crowd in another venue, I think I'd be lucky. Um, uh, so, But um, it's interesting how your mind obsesses about it. And, and, and actually part of the experience of doing stand-up is learning to live with that low-level anxiety because um, I remember, I was thinking about this today actually, I remember when I first started doing professional stand-up gigs, yeah, like the night before I'd have to make an effort to do something that would, like a positive thing, like maybe rent a video or something uh, because that would be enough of a thing to take my mind off the fact the next night I had a professional stand-up with that was doing 20 minutes right doing 20 minute sets with with known material as well and tried and tested material this is uh tomorrow is going to be like an hour and 20 with untested material uh but I suppose the difference is first of all yeah playing to a known crowd a home crowd and secondly um that I'm older now and I don't give so much of my self-esteem 
to strangers to you know to to say whether I feel okay about myself or not um and uh, but 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 part of the process is is that process of learning to live with that stress and learning to deal with it and and just knowing that about yourself like I know before the show I can picture it now I'll be in the wings of the Gulbenki and I've, I've performed there before so I know what that's like I know what it looks like I can visualize it in detail and I know I'll be hating myself and thinking why the hell did I do this I, I did a big diabetes event um the first stand-up gig I did after my big diabetes themed stand-up show and I did a sort of version of that show for a big diabetes organisation it would have been about six years ago now and I remember just before going on going oh no this is going to be funny oh why did I agree to do this this could be really embarrassing oh maybe it'll have educational value even if it's not funny that kind of thing I went on and it it just went like a dream so it's just knowing that about yourself knowing this is what it's going to be like and that's all fine. And actually, I think a huge part of being a stand-up is just having tricks that can trick you into the right frame of mind just before you go on stage. So actually, one of the key things that I've done by way of prep for this show is to um, make a kind of intro tape so that when I come onto the stage, I've already been announced. I don't have to announce myself off, from the off-stage mic. I, it's like a pre-recorded thing. There's some jokes in it. It's kind of a bit quirky. So hopefully, uh, you know, if I get a couple of laughs from what happens before I come on, that's a real charm, you know. If I don't, it doesn't matter. Um, but it's like um, the student comedy night I recorded about five years ago, six years ago. I recorded the theme tune for that. And it's great because it's really stupid. It lasts about a minute. And while it's playing, the audience get, come regularly and they just start clapping along with it. And you can tell by how much they join in what kind of a time you're going to have with the the very beginning of the show. So, uh, yeah, all those things you can do to, 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 you know, to trick yourself into being into a playful, confident mood are really important. Breaking a leg. And thus draws to a close episode 17 of Breaking a Leg. Tonight, the show, more episodes will follow when we know what's happened in that.